Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman pod on The Athletic, as well as David. Today, we're joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and our Wolves writer and host of the Molyneux View, Tim Spears. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. That means you'll get the analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So all you have to do, go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Let's start with talking about Wolves then. Tim, you've uh, written about the Portuguese revolution there and the influence that George Mendes has had at Molyneux since 2016. Before we delve into all of that, let's deal with them on the field this season because I found them more often than not to be the hardest of the 20 teams to get a handle on this season. I I watch them and at times think some of their players are fantastic and and they get you off, off your seat. And yet a lot of the time you also watch them and think, God, just be on the front foot a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of reflects the opinion of a lot of fans as well, actually. Um, I mean, I think for a bit of context for the season, that they really did struggle with having no break last summer. I mean, Man City and Man United were the other two teams, I think, to get a, a 30-day break for, after being in Europe the previous season. But Wolves just haven't got the squad to, to cope with that. And they, they played 59 games last year with the smallest squad in the Premier League to then expect them to, to go again 30 days later. So I think I think they've sort of played within themselves a little bit this year and they've had to manage that schedule like everyone else has. And then, of course, they've lost Raul Jimenez and they've changed formation at the same time. You know, this uh, this kind of zany 4-2-3-1 experiment after, after three years of, of 3-4-3 every single week. And they just started shipping goals left, right and centre. They were scoring more, they were having more shots, they were creating more, they were letting... They were letting them in at the other end as well. So so that's been canned for now. They have tightened it up in the last few weeks and got some points on the board, which which they needed because they were heading towards the bottom three, you know, at, at, at a rate. So um, unbelievably, they're only two points off where they were this time last year. If they can put a run together and they're, they're hoping that Jimenez will be back, you know, before long, touch wood, um, they could even finish seventh again for the third season in a row. You, you just never know. And the other thing we ought to mention as well, a loss of two influential players in the summer in, in Dirty and Jota. Yeah, I think which, that probably had a big effect, didn't it? It did. And, you know, Nelson Semedo uh, came in for a lot of money at right back and, uh, and it's taken time to settle in and certainly question marks over last summer's recruitment, which you can't really level at Wolves too often in the last few years. But signings took a while to settle in. So, yeah, they lost Jota, Doherty and Jimenez. And I think that's 70% of last season's goals. That's a struggle for any team to replace. And, um, and yeah, with Jimenez and Johnny Castro-Otto out with an ACL... It, a big chunk of last season's team out and um, and they've taken a while to get, to get used to that. Tim, I was fascinated by the in-depth piece you've done on, on Wolves' Portuguese revolution that people should go and read on The Athletic. Just reading it, it struck me that this club has been completely and utterly revolutionised. The, the whole face of it has been changed. The, the makeup of the, the on-field personnel, obviously. Now, we've seen it at other clubs, Manchester City, with, with their overseas investment, they, they were transformed. But I don't think we've seen it in this country anyway with sort of one predominant nationality. Can you just give us a flavour if you sort of step back from your day-to-day reporting and reflect on what on earth has happened to that club and, and give people listening to this a flavour of what your piece conveys? It is crazy when you think about it, and you're right, it- in the, in the day-to-day, it, you just accept it as the norm. But when you step back and think of, of what Wolves were like in 2015, it's such a world away. You know, you had, you had Steve Morgan as, as owner. You had a, a policy of sort of best of British and, and bringing kids through from the academy and not a huge amount of money to spend, really. And the club not really going anywhere at that time. Of 34 years... 
they'd spent 30 outside the Premier League at that time. For fans of a, of a certain generation, that might not mean a lot, but but you know, Wolves through the, from the 50s through to the mid-80s were, were consistently in the top flight and, and won an awful lot of trophies. So it's a cliche, but they were a sleeping giant and Foson have come in and, and, and changed everything about the club, really. And, and you're right, to go from that to... Chinese owners and Portuguese manager, Portuguese players everywhere. It's 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 a massive change, but despite all that change, and there's a it's, it's not just change on the field, it's off it as well. The, yeah. whole, the whole culture of the place has changed. The city is very much a sort of an underdog city. You know, it's high levels of of, of, of unemployment and, and poverty, and and it's and it's very much you know that they're, they're um they enjoy that kind of under, underdog role and very self deprecating. You know, the, 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 those are notions which which Chinese businessmen have no relation to whatsoever. Sort of underdog and and, and self deprecating. <laughs> you know? So, so the, the kind of you know the club's motto: out, out of darkness cometh light. I mean, they, they've sort of they've moved away from that, and and they want want the club to be aspirational and, and ambitious, and they want the fans to go with them. Really, so it's been an awful lot of culture change off the field as well, and lots of staff have moved on, and the whole place has been revolutionised. But they've had this enormous success at the same time, which is which is what what, make, what makes it such an incredible story. Where do we start with this? Because because obviously we can talk about a Portuguese revolution, but actually from what you've said there, the first the first point of call has to be talking about the owners and what they have implemented, which is unusual in some ways because it sounds like they've used the expertise of others to build the clubs, and not every not every owner does that when they come in, particularly. Well, no, I was going to say particularly foreign owners, but that's not fair. I mean, no, both British and foreign owners tend to think they know best, but they've evidently come in, invested, but used the expertise of others. Yeah, they, they have. And I remember being called in, they, they, were, they were doing, they were trying to, trying to change the club's brand and they were interviewing fans and local journalists as well, which is why I got called in. And they wanted to know all about what the city meant to people and 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 how that conflicted with with sort of Foson's values really. When Wolves went down to League One, there was a banner erected by the fans on the North Bank, and it said, "This is our club, and it knows no division." Which I thought was a it's a nice slogan. It doesn't matter what league we're in, yeah. we don't care. We'll be here. Foson got rid of that. <laughs> you know, they, they, they do care what what division Wolves are in, and it has to be the Premier League and beyond. So there has been an awful lot of change. Yes, instigated by that culture, but also. George Mendes and his links and his agency has been such a key part of, of the playing side of it. Inadvertently, that has changed the culture of the, of the first team squad as well in terms of the professionalism that these Portuguese lads have brought with them. I wouldn't say Wolves ever had necessarily a drinking culture, but you'd certainly you'd see them out about in, in town, in Birmingham, uh, the VIP sections of, of nightclubs. No, not not in Wolverhampton because Wolverhampton doesn't have any VIP sections in it. Um, <laughs> but but you know what I mean. But whereas the, the, the Portuguese lads, they're more uh, a, a glass of wine, a meal with family and friends, socialising with each other. They don't really go out and about, and that's sort of reflected in the way that they approach training as well. So the whole the whole culture on and off the field has been been completely changed. Adam, you wrote an absolutely fascinating piece on George Mendes, and um, we shouldn't dance around that elephant in the room because I think if that sort of influence was being exerted at some, how should we say, higher profile Premier League clubs by a renowned agent, it would be scrutinised in an even bigger way than it is at Wolves. And how does it sit with you? Is there a, a bit of a an unedifying side to this or is it all okay? No, I, I actually think probably too much is made of it, as odd as that sounds, because I, I think back to when Blackburn were taken over by the Venkis um, over a decade ago now, and they they did quite a similar thing um, in the sense of they put a lot of trust in, I suppose you would say, preferred agents or trusted agents. They got it wrong, basically. They put their trust in the wrong people at the wrong time, whereas Wolves, it turns out, have put their trust in the person who has the best connections, the best network, the best young talent on his books. Actually, when I was doing that piece, looking into, and the piece wasn't really looking into Mendes as an individual. It was more looking into how he worked or gamed the summer window last year, where, you know, if you spoke to most football agents last summer, they were all saying, it's going to be a disaster. We're not going to make any money. It's never been tougher because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And then Mendes came along and he just cleaned up. I mean, he, he worked uh, Spurs that month, Leeds, Valencia. He had this very clever way last summer of basically knowing which clubs had money 
and which clubs needed money. And he did that faster than anyone else. And it meant, you know, he knew, for example, Valencia's income streams had halved because of the pandemic and because of Peter Lim's reduced investments. Therefore, they needed money. He also knew leads were going up and had a bit of money. And very quickly, he was able to be the man that brought together the Rodrigo deal that went from uh, Valencia to Leeds last summer. And then he started doing all these, and he's been doing these for quite a few years now, between clubs that you would say are, I suppose, preferred clubs for him in terms of good relationships that he has with presidents or chief executives, such as Olympiacos, uh, Benfica, Braga, uh, Porto, uh, Atletico Madrid, Valencia, Olympiacos. It's quite a lot of, it's a growing stable of clubs, Barcelona, Manchester United at times over the last few years, Real Madrid. And he put together these chains and, and he did it almost positionally. So, you know, you look at Wolves, for example, Matt Doherty goes from Wolves to Spurs, George Mendes as the agent, two of his clients or long-standing clients, Nuno Espirito Santo, Jose Mourinho, Wolves and Tottenham. That was one deal that happened. Then they had to replace uh, Matt Doherty at Wolves. So in came Nelson Semedo from Barcelona. Bartomeu, who has now left Barcelona as president, was close to Mendes. That deal, I think, was, can you help us out at this point that we really need income coming into the club? He knew that Wolves had some money to spend in that position. He was able to make that deal happen. You then had in the left-back position, I think, two other players that he was able to move around. You had eight Nori who went out from Wolves to... Was it to Olympiacos, Tim? It was Vinagra that went to Olympiacos. Vinag- Ruben Vinagra went to Olympiacos. Eight Nori came in and then Marcel comes in from Lyon for a very small fee relative, I think, to, to his quality. So I suppose critics of Mendes would say some of, these, some of these fees are inflated. Some of these fees appear deflated. Um, what's the longstanding impact of the transfer window on that? But if you're one of the clubs that are benefiting from it at that moment in time, you're in the midst of a pandemic, you're just thinking, thank God, thank God he's there. Yeah. Because, you know, I think that's where, that's what the clubs will be thinking at this moment in time. And it was really interesting talking to people during that piece. It was very hard to find people who were saying negative things about Mendes. And you normally get agents slagging each other off left, right and centre. And most of them were actually just saying, he's just gamed it. He's gamed this window and he's thought quicker than the rest of us. Just one final point on this is people talk a lot about Mendes's I suppose, control of the Portuguese market. And it's certainly true to say that, uh, you know, I, I am uncomfortable with the amount of power that he has. You know, it would be like one agent having a huge amount of power over Liverpool, Manchester United and Manchester City. You know, when you look at the amount of power that he has at, or influence that he appears to have at Porto, Benfica, Braga, to have the top clubs in one country all, you know, so enthralled to one agent. But if you then go to Holland, for example, now, you know, the stable of young talent that Mino Raiola has in, in Holland is huge now. A lot of the Dutch under-21 under national team assigned to Mino Raiola. So it's not just one agent doing it in one country and he's the only one at it. You know, Mino Raiola's doing it in Holland now. And it, I think it's going to be increasing the way that the super agents have superpowers. There are a couple of things here, really, out of that discussion, Tim. The, f- the first is Wolves are probably or definitely more open about this than other clubs. We, I mean, David touched on, on Blackburn as Adam did, but there are plenty of clubs that we know in the background are controlled by one or two agents in the main in their transfer policy and, and not controlled particularly well in those situations. And also the, the, the second thing is here, if you don't like it, if you don't like the agents being disconnected, clubs make themselves more connected. Club, the clubs go out and do this work that, that the agents do. You know, it's hard work to be well connected and build up relationships. And there are enough people at football clubs, if this isn't a Wolves, by the way, this is just Adam's general point. Go, go and do what George Mendes has done. Wolves could never dream of any of the connections that they've had over oh. the last few years without him. You know, they signed Ruben Neves in, in the Championship. Yeah. You know, they signed Diogo Jota. They signed Giamatino as a newly promoted Premier League club for £5 million. It would never happen without him. So, I mean, as, as, as far as kind of Foson's um, relationship with him, I think they're open about it because they don't see anything wrong with it. No. And they've not broken any rules. And they call him his friend. And Nuno's 
uh, been friends with him for 20 years. You know, they're, they're very open about that and, and their use of him. And whenever, you know, I'm reporting on a new sign-in, it's, it's George Mendes bingo. You know, is, is, is he Portuguese? Is he a guest of take client? Yeah, yes, he is. Here's another one. You know, but it's sort of a running joke. But but the, the fans don't care either because, because they're winning. Tim, has there been a shift over the past 12 months in that? So I think, I suppose, first of all, the sporting director... Kevin Thelwell left the club. And then last summer, I suppose one of the criticisms that people have had of Mendes is that he may help you for a couple of years. And then eventually those, you know, those nice deals, like you said, like João Moutinho, Ruben Neves, things that feel, that come to feel like favours because they, they seem, appear as bargains, then you have to start repaying. And I suppose in the cases of Nelson Semedo and Fabio Silva, is there any sense among the, the Wolves fan base, you know, we've lost Doherty and Jota here. These two guys have come in, a couple of others. Are we still getting the best end of the deal? Is, is there any shift in, in that view? Only when they're not winning. I, it really is as black and white as that. I remember in, in 2016-17, Mendes and Foson's first season, when it was an absolute car crash. They had Walter Zenger, then they had Paul Lambert. They'd already sat Kenny Jacket. They signed 12 players in six weeks. I've ne- never been so busy in my life. I, I, I got about four hours sleep a night. It was ridiculous. And they had an absolute car crash of a season. And yes, everyone was was were very concerned about Mendes then. Um, lots of murmurs from the fan base. Within 12 months, they're top of the league and the fans are wearing George Mendes masks at matches. It's uh, because they're top of the league and they're winning, so they don't care. But it, it, in reference to your point, yes, there has been a, a bit more this season, mostly because the money they spent last summer, they've not had a return on that investment at all. And Wolves have been great at getting return on their investments pretty quickly over the past few years. You know, a few weeks after Neves signed for 15 million or Troyore signed for 18 million, you you knew you had a, you had a bargain then. Whereas 35 million for Fabio Silva and 37 for Semedo with all the add-ons. That's, that's not good value for money at the moment. So yes, there are those questions. There's been questions over Nuno's future as well from from a few fans this season. You know, with them heading towards the bottom three. So there's that question there as well. What happens when when Nuno leaves Wolves? He's um, Mendes is Jeff She's key advisor, but he's also Nuno's best mate. So when he comes to leave, of his own choice or not, how on earth does that work? And how do they go about replacing him? There, there, there are lots of questions on that front. And there were similar ethical questions around Mac Doherty, you could say, when you know Mendes is his agent. He is doing the deal with Tottenham. He's helping Mourinho, who's a client of his as well. Adam, when does conflict of interest come into play? And if things go wrong for George Mendes or focuses change and he starts a project elsewhere, I know, I know there's a uh, there's a um, financial link up between him and him and Foson. So perhaps this is slightly more permanent. But is there any sort of long term jeopardy involved here that could leave Wolves in a bit of trouble at any point? It's really hard to tell. I mean, with I mean, with the Doherty one, you know, managers call up people they know for advice, right? Yeah. And, and that happens at every club. This isn't just Tottenham and Wolves. Managers, you know, will be calling agents that, they, that they've come to know over time. They'll be saying, oh, I need a sense about this summer. Who do you know that might be available? Can you help us do it? That goes on a lot. I think that the, the Doherty one was, was unusual for that reason. You've got two, player, uh, two managers with the same agent, a player with the same agent and that deal was able to happen. But at the same time, it did sort of make sense for everyone involved at that time. Spurs needed a right back. Matt Doherty had looked really good for a few years. Um, I know it's not worked out necessarily that well for him at Tottenham. At the time, I don't think anyone was saying, God, that's not a great deal for Spurs or that, you know, Mourinho's relationship with Mendes has led him to sign someone who's not good enough. I don't think that was the vibe I got from that at the time. If anything, I was maybe thinking, having seen Matt Doherty at Wolves for a couple of years, it seems a little bit on the low side. Now you watch the way it's played out and I sort of think, well, 15 million, probably about right based on on, on what we've seen. Mm. So I think that that is, I, I don't have that much of an issue, an issue with, you know, managers using their networks to, to bring players in because why, why wouldn't you? It's a bit like, you know, if we wanted to hire a journalist tomorrow, we'd probably call up anyone that we, that we know that we trust and take their advice. I think 
Who would that be, Adam? Adam, if you had to, if you had to hire, I don't, a I don't trust anyone. So you no. know, <laughs> um, but where it becomes interesting is you have managers and chief executives now who who have these networks, but people like Mendes or Raiola or, or other agents are able to benefit because clubs don't work hard enough on recruitment. That's what it comes down to. Mm. I don't blame these guys for taking advantage of, you know, if it's some, if it's Fosun, for example, or if it's a different club, you know, if, if they're coaches, we're not going to maybe put in all the work and we're going to take a very strong recommendation instead from this agent based on his network of experience then if you're the agent, why, why wouldn't you do it? If it's within the rules, if it's within the guidelines that are set out by FIFA, they're not doing anything wrong. We can talk about whether it's unethical or not to put so much trust in one person. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Tim will jump in and say, Wolves have a vast network of recruitment and scouts and they put in a lot of legwork in addition to the recommendations that, that are made. But it, it does seem overwhelming that you know, a vast number of these signings all come from the same recommendation at least at the start but I don't blame the agents for I suppose taking advantage of clubs maybe not you know having those vast networks Tim the way it's always been described to me is that yeah he opens doors that 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 others can't they do have um, a a functioning a very good recruitment team particularly in terms of the academy and younger players and I guess Fabio Silva would be the archetypal Mendes deal in that he was a player that Wolves were well aware of they'd scouted for two years considered to be one of the best strikers of his age in sort of youth football. And then Mendes was the one that said, look, you can have this guy for 30 million if you like. And then the owners asked the recruitment team, they say, go for it. And they go for it. And Mendes does the deal. The thing with Wolves is that the staff that are in place at the club have got to be complicit and willing to accept this arrangement. And, and Kevin Thelwell was willing to do so for many years. Scott Sellers is now his replacement. And, and Scott is an excellent operator. He's run the academy for a few years. Uh, he's got a master's in, in sporting directorship, but he's got no experience of recruitment above academy level. And, you know, Wolves are, are aiming for the top six. So he's he's not coming in to do that job. And he's got to accept that that Mendes is the most influential person at the club. It doesn't mean they don't do a lot of other work in terms of scouting. Uh, last January, for example, there were sort of two teams within the recruitment setup looking at the situation. And I think Kevin Thelwell and his team had kind of recommended um signing Danny Olmo or Huang from Red Bull Salzburg. Mendes was saying, we can get Daniel Pedence from Olympiacos here. And it was Nuno's call and he went with Pedence. So, so that, that's, that's the way it's often done. It's often Mendes who, who wins out. But their recruitment success is undeniable from the past four years. Where there becomes this sort of conflict of interest is where you have Nuno suggesting a deal, I suppose, from, I suppose previously he's had a good relationship with the Olympiacos owner. Then he's got a good relationship with the Wolves owner. He suggests, I don't know, Pedence. Does a deal take takes a takes a cut of it from both is involved in both sides of the deal maybe represents the player as well I think that's where people start to look at it and think hang on a minute you know he's on that side of the deal he's on that side of the deal and then he's also helping the helping the player as well I think that's where people become uncomfortable but again not necessarily doing anything wrong in doing it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a Wolves deal, really, Tim, where I've gone, oh, They've, I mean, Adam's point about dirty is fair enough. I think maybe, you know, maybe it would have been a bit more. Uh, who knows? But you look at the prices and you think, do you know what? Actually, when they sell them, that seems a fairly fair price for selling them. And when they bring them in, you sort of think, yeah, in the main, that seems a fairly fair price to bringing them in. What I would argue is how all those deals are, is it actually highlights the inadequacies of several other deals in the transfer market when people massively overpay but maybe that equally highlights how in other transfer deals you've got so many other people involved rather than just the one person that that bumps the price up and money's going out in all directions i think that's the thing that that so many of wolves's deals have involved mendes clubs that that's that's how the price gets gets kept down and and wolves have probably overpaid for one or two and other clubs have maybe given them a little bit more money than they would normally have got but wolves will pay for that maybe further down the line and 
and when Porto needed a lot of money in the summer, you know, their Wolves were taking a couple of players off their books. But Pedro Gonçalves would be a sort of um, another example as well. I mean, that's one who's kind of slipped through the net for Wolves. I mean, he's, he's top scorer in, in Portugal at the moment. And Wolves sold him on for a pittance a couple of years ago. And 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 his his career history is he's got he's got four clubs in the Mendo in the Mendes Bingo at the moment. He's he's already at 22. He's got Valencia, Wolves, Formalisau, and Sporting already. And he, you know he wasn't kicking a ball for Wolves, so so off off, off he goes. Um, and and now, and now look at him. So that will be the that will be the bad side of it from Wolves' point of view. When you look at I suppose the young talent that they brought in at Wolves, and I look at someone like Neto now, who I think has been incredible this season. He's, I think he's been one of the most watchable players um, in the league. What do you see as their plan being for, for him? Is it, is it going to be another Jota in the sense that they, you know, they take the sell-on value and then try and get the next one? Or it, you know, is there going to be a stage where Wolves hope to be big enough to keep these players? That's their dilemma going forward now, isn't it? Do they want to still want to buy younger Portuguese players for 10, 15 million and then and then bring them on and then sell them two, three years later and keep that cycle going. If if you're going to break the top six, I mean, it's, it's extremely good financially. And yeah, Neto was, what, £16 million a, a couple of years ago. Fosun's kind of philosophy does sort of align with Mendes in that respect and that, that they're always looking for bargains and always looking for the long term and, and often look, looking for, for young players. And I think it's it's a slight misconception. Liverpool came in and, and took Jota off them against their will. He was out the team at the end of last season. I mean, he was second sub for the Europa League court final against Olympiacos. And Neto was the one who came on ahead of him. So having bought him for 13 million three years earlier, Liverpool then willing to pay 45 million for a player who's not guaranteed a first team place. I mean, it just made complete and total sense to to sell. But I, I think that there is a slight frustration among the fan base that they don't really buy ready-made players for the first team. And often it's ones like your Netos and others who kind of gradually come through and then ultimately realise their potential a little bit down the line rather than being ready-made, um, which is what, of course, Nelson Semedo was, was supposed to be. Tim made a really good point about nobody really says anything when Wolves are winning. It's more when, when they're not. It made me think of other clubs who have had a number of players from a certain client, notably in recent times, Arsenal and Kia Jurabchian, when they've not been doing so well or when they lose, it seems that a lot of people turn on those players and that relationship. And when they win, you know, only yesterday at Leicester, when the Jurabchian clients played very well, nobody says a thing. And, and it seems a similar equation in this sense. But obviously at Wolves, it's more sort of pervasive as you say like on and off the pitch I was looking down the comments below your piece and a lot of excitement a lot of questions a lot of people just don't know what to think what do you think as a journalist who who's on that patch and in touch with all those fans in touch with people at the club and players too of what the future holds is it George Mendes and Wolves and Foson long term if it wasn't have you have you have you thought of what Wolves does look like? Does it revert to to that team you you talked about right at the start? It's a good question. I mean, you know, when when Foson came in, uh, it was a ten year plan to get to the top, and they were going to spend a lot of money quite quickly and transform Wolves into a Champions League club in in ten years. I think they've scaled back on that now. It's gone from a ten year plan to a twenty year plan, and fans will hope it's not a fifty year plan uh, this time next year. Um, so I think they've they've realised just how difficult it is to, to crack that top six. But and there's all sorts of questions as well about Chinese ownership in in European football as well. I think Foson are slightly different in that respect, in that they've always had investments out, outside of Asia, and I don't sense any slowing down in terms of commitment from them. To the contrary, really, there are lots of things going on that people probably wouldn't see in terms of they're growing a lot um, in esports, fashion as well, believe it or not. Wolves fashion is a thing. I went to a fashion show in Shanghai uh, two years ago, which <laughs> was one of the most surreal experiences of my entire life. Were you front row? Were you one of those people on the front row with like, you know, Gwyneth on one side <laughs> and, you know, Naomi on the other? I was, I was loitering like a journalist in the background with, with the camera phone, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was, uh, I thought I'd taken some hallucinogenic drugs. It was just absolutely surreal. You've got the Shanghai skyline behind you and these Chinese models wearing like wolves. wolves. I've just got a wolves badge on an otherwise very fashionable kind of top. I was like, what's going on here? What's going on? I remember when, when, when you know, Kenny Jacket was in charge and, the, and we got excited about signing Adam LaFondra. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's ludicrous. So, but yeah, so, so they are thinking about 
that as well. They are, they are taking it seriously in terms of growing the Wolves brand. And that, that was a key part of why Fosun bought the club because even silly things like the, the colours are slightly different and, and the badge is very recognisable and the name is very easy and the wolf. And that was all about making it mar- marketable in Asia uh, and across the world, really. So there's all sorts of different strands going on in Mexico and America and, and Portugal. And I don't, I don't sense Fosun's commitment waning at all. And like I said earlier, the, the, the question is what happens when Nuno goes or, or Mendes is, isn't as interested. And it's up to Wolves to put the foundations in place so that that doesn't affect them too much as, as and when that happens. And they have brought in a lot of people behind the scenes. And I, and I think they're, they're very aware of succession planning, which is, which is something they really need to be doing now. I sense in about a year or two years time, Tim, there is a, it, it would be a very athletic piece. What, what really was the thinking behind the Wolves Shanghai fashion show? <laughs> and you, you go back and talk to the people involved. If, if ever that is, it was an athletic piece, then that is one to do. It's a great idea. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Okay, let's move on. We're going to talk Brighton and Graham Potter next. Uh, Lots of people admiring the way they play. And actually, lots of stats back up the way they play. Although the one stat that matters, points, isn't great because they hover uh, just above the relegation places. And they will... Adam be nervously looking over their shoulders at the moment. They will. It's quite interesting because it's, it's probably the same position that they found themselves in for the last three or four years at this stage of the season, just above that relegation zone, 10 games to go, but the, the 12 games to go. There's, there's a different vibe to it, isn't there, this year, where it feels like things are conspiring against them. They're hitting the bar, they're hitting the post, they're missing two penalties at West Brom. They just cannot score goals. And I think it's thrown up this almost mini culture war within football discussion, isn't it? About, you know, we know that they're playing well, we know that they're enjoyable to watch, but they're not winning points. I'm not sure where I stand on this because when when I don't watch Brighton play and I see the results, I roll my eyes a little bit and I'm like, you know, everyone's saying, you know, Andy Nail is writing again that they're unlucky and everyone's feeling sorry for them, but they've not scored a goal at West Brom. And, you know, how much sympathy can you have for a team that can't score a goal at West Brom? And then you watch them play and they're absolutely brilliant. They have 10 chances a game. They outplay the opposition. They outplay good teams. They won at Anfield and they deserve to win at Anfield. They should have beaten Manchester United back at the Amex back in August. Back. They were brilliant at home to Spurs. They were fantastic at home to Spurs. And when they win, they, you know, they deserve to win. But I, I, str- I struggle with this concept that a team is unlucky because they don't score goals, you know, because when you think that finishing, finishing, in my opinion, is the number one skill in football, and it's not just something that is an intangible, it's something that it requires technique, it requires concentration, it requires composure, lots of those assets that make up fantastic footballers. I wonder a bit about a football club that's put all their faith in a, 
I suppose what you would say is a process or a style manager, but they're not provided that ultimate ingredient, which is someone who can score goals for them. It seems quite contradictory to have a manager who plays in that style, but then not, you know, giving him Danny Welbeck up front on a free transfer back in the summer. Um, And I understand the restraints of the pandemic and I understand they bought Mopay for, was it 10 and a half million a couple of years ago? So, you know, it's not like they've not invested, but that's the contradiction. And then now as we go into this final, you know, the final straight of the season, you wonder what impact this, you know, this little run that they've had where they've just not been able to score goals is going to have on the psychology because, you know, I, I think that they are a bit softer defensively than what they were two years ago. I think, you know, Brighton go into games, you expect them to concede a goal and that means they're going to have to score two. And at the moment, they can't score one. So it's, it's a really interesting sort of tension that it's thrown up. But I suppose to push it onto, onto David a little, a little bit, we know that Graham Potter has a lot of admirers. He also has some detractors, but mostly admirers. Are we going to get into a position where Brighton finish 17th and yet the guy who finishes 17th is probably above most other people in terms of being a contender for a, you know, for a, in the future, an Everton job or a Tottenham job or a, Arsenal even going forwards. I find it so fascinating how we, we've talked about the Wolves model, completely different setup at Brighton, very much not relying on, on a Mendes agent style figure. Most clubs don't, to be honest, but they've got Tony Bloom at the top, a lot of intelligence, good appointments, great facilities, uh, forward thinking in terms of the relationships they've struck up with overseas clubs. Someone like Dan Ashworth, their technical director, was very inc- very closely involved in the conversations around the uh, post-Brexit rules and criteria. And so they were thinking of ways that they could bring in players via sort of feeder clubs or call, you, call them what you like. Very different model to what Wolves have done. Paul Barber, a CEO as well. Yeah, they've been, at, they've been at the forefront, some great people behind the scenes. But in a parallel way to what we were talking about, Wolves and a lack of goals, Wolves because of a, a, a terrible injury um, to Raul Jimenez, Brighton because they didn't manage to sign somebody. It's as simple as that, but it's then, as Wolves showed, really difficult to find somebody who is going to be right for your team and come in and score those goals. So despite having a really different model, many of these clubs are experiencing similar problems. In terms of Potter, whenever I watch Brighton, you mentioned the Man United game. I think back to a couple of Tottenham games this season and last. I have been blown away by some of the football they've played in terms of I watch probably more of the top teams and some of their lack of coordination and understanding of the instructions that they're being told by their coaches and managers compared to a Brighton. Everybody absolutely knew what they were doing, how they were meant to be doing it. And you've got some players coming through like Basuma, who no doubt the the biggest clubs are going to be looking at. And that's a tribute to Brighton's recruitment and their coaching. And that brings us on to Adam's point about Potter in that I know that within the game, he's extremely highly thought of. You know, his transition into English football, maybe a younger version of Roy Hodgson in that sense, doing his time and really impressing at Swansea. Similarly, on and off the pitch at at Brighton, the way he's gone about things. I think an unsexy character name coach like him We've seen them fail so many times. Things conspire against them. They don't impress many of the players in this generation who who see, I don't know, previously have maybe seen like a Mourinho or a, a big name former player come in and lift it up. Complete opposite with Potter. He's done things the right way. He's coached them up to a level. He's been noticed. He's got some good people around him who who have the right connections within football, which is a really important factor in getting that next bigger job. I don't hear him mentioned in the Tottenham's and Arsenal's conversations just yet. I'm not sure about the Everton type conversations. They made an incredible appointment in Carlo Ancelotti, but I do hear people within the game talking about him in the FA style set up as a potential future England manager. I'm not underestimating the size of that role, but the way that Potter's come through, his background, his style of play, his connections within the game, the regard in which he's held, he he's seen as a very dependable, clean sort of character that, that somebody like the FA might look to in the future. We've seen that with the appointment of Gareth Southgate. They don't appear a million miles away in, in a lot of their uh, qualities. It means that I, I could see Potter going very far in the game and, and good luck to him. They were beaten at West Brom on 
Saturday were Brighton in a, uh, I mean, that a huge part of it. They have to take their own responsibility for this on the on the fact that they managed to miss two penalties <laughs> uh, in, in that game. Um, they did also have the free kick that went in, and then Lee Mason and VAR managed to disallow it in whatever combination they came to their decision. Uh, there was another one yesterday involving uh, VAR and Stuart Atwell and the Chelsea handball. Uh, Luke Shaw saying, uh, making comments afterwards about what referee Stuart Atwell had said to Harry Maguire, which then Manchester United rode back from later in the evening. I just think, uh, I'll come to you, Tim, first on this. I just think in all the confusion, it would be nice to hear. And, and actually, TV commentators do get a feed of referee and VAR talking to each other. So I think they do get that. But accessibility for us all to be able to hear decisions being made would help. Well, I mean, rugby's led the way on that, and and and, and in refereeing mm. in in general. And it would, I mean, I'd love to just hear how they manage the game. I mean, you mentioned Lee Mason. Sorry to kind of bring it back to Wolves, but but Nuno was fined a, a few yeah. weeks ago. Yes, um, yeah. But it was That's really right. interesting what he was fined for. They lost to Burnley that day. And there were no controversial decisions in the game that I noticed. And then I couldn't, I couldn't believe it when he went into this, this post-match rant about Lee Mason in particular, sort of on his character, really. I mean, it was slightly lost in, in mistranslation, but he said he wasn't good enough to whistle, um, which I thought was quite a nice comment, which he said a few times. Um, but the point was, it was, the way, it was the way in which he'd managed the players and the way in which he'd been unable to control the players and not to put words in his mouth, but he was kind of suggesting a bit of an arrogance in, in not discussing decisions with the players. And I think that's a big bugbear for a lot of them. I, I did a piece with Connor Cody last year on, on his sort of role as a captain. And he gave Michael Oliver as an example of a really good referee, because especially in this VAR era, he'll talk through his decisions. He'll explain what's going on, especially with VAR. And I think it's the ones who, who don't speak to players and maybe and maybe look down to them and uh, tell them to shush and maybe treat them like kids a little bit. That's just going to rile players so much, and that's when games get out of control. So I think to be able to hear how the referees deal with the players would give a really interesting insight in, in, into into how games can get out of control sometimes. Yeah, I mentioned that to the Premier League last night, and it was very clearly relayed that this has to be a decision from IFAB. Um, the lawmakers of football and therefore we go through the processes that we've been through with VAR, goal line technology and everything else. Uh, it seems a no-brainer. I think it would really help the Premier League. I think they're being absolutely battered week in, week out and a lot of it is avoidable by pushing for change. They've, you know, various stakeholders in within football have rightly pushed for change in concussion substitutions that depending on what side of the argument you sit on, uh, has come about relatively quickly uh, compared to some other things. I feel this could be too. I don't know what they're afraid of if these things are being said. And as you point out, Mark, they're being relayed to broadcasters live anyway. It could avoid a lot of the sort of referee pylons that seem to be uh, more ferocious because of the sort of anonymity and and the veil of secrecy. I think a bit more transparency where somebody from the Premier League or or the referees themselves just comes out and talks about this could diffuse a lot of the uh, the drama around it and the, the vitriol. And I, I mentioned this point on the pod a, a while ago about the fitness of referees. Now he's pulled a calf muscle. Uh, that can happen to anyone. He's hobbling around in the final minutes and now he's he, he was... Um, prevented from being VAR in last night's match between Sheffield United and Liverpool. He's going to be ruled out of the midweek match between Burnley and Leicester on Wednesday. Uh, That avoids a a tricky decision for the Premier League to make. And we mentioned that in, in my Monday column because I think there would have been huge pressure on them to step Lee Mason aside, demote, take him out of the firing line, call it what you like, because he's been involved in a number of controversial uh, incidents this season. Tim's pointed to one of them there. I think he was the VAR when um, Mike Dean sent off Thomas Suchek at Fulham, uh, the West Ham player. Um, And it brings me back to a point, whether he was just unfortunate or not with this calf injury, I don't think the referees in England largely are as fit as they should be, despite passing the PGMO's 
OL's tests. Um, a lot of people have pointed out to me uh, in, in our comments section of how fit some of the, a lot of the referees are in certain countries and we see them in European competitions, certain Premier League managers. I think back to Arsene Wenger saying that a few years ago that no English referees is going to be going to, I don't know if it was the World Cup or the European Championships. So I think there's a communication element and I think there's a standard of, of refereeing and fitness that really desperately needs to improve because I, and the consistency, of course, I do sympathise with a lot of the difficulties that they experience around VAR and other matters such as player behaviour and the abuse that they cop, um, the Darren Drysdale incident at Ipswich, I felt quite sorry for him standing up to a player and he got charged by the Football Association despite the player who instigated it just not having any kind of scrutiny around him. To be fair to Alan Judge in that situation, he's tried to say, look, no apology needed, we move on. Afterwards, uh, yeah. You know, afterwards. He's, he, mm. he doesn't want to charged by the FA and so on and so forth. Just, it's interesting you mentioned that it's IFAB that would make the decision on communications because, and this is kind of now a weekly occurrence where I put something to Adam and he tells me he's too young to remember it. But if, if IFAB are going to do this, then that's David Ellery's decision. David Ellery, the, the referee who was miked 20 years ago or whatever it was mm. when Tony, it was Tony, it was Tony Adams, wasn't it? Who then swore, swore a lot to him. And despite the fact that is 20 or 30 years ago, however long it is, that incident is still brought up as the reason why, oh, we couldn't have referees mics. But in this situation, it is the same man involved, the man there who was mic'd and the man who would now make the decision. I think it would help a lot. I think it would help in terms of, first of all, in terms of encountering, first of all, in terms of exposing the the way that referees are spoken to during games, uh, I think would surprise a lot of people um, in terms of what they have to put up with. I think it would also <laughs> put a stop to a lot of that as well, because, you know, I mean, poor old Martin Tyler and Bill Leslie will be apologising for 90 minutes about the language that we're hearing um, on the on the TV. Um, but but the second part of that is it will also, from a, from a broadcaster's perspective, hugely enhance the product. We, ha- we had this moment last year in, May and June, where everyone was talking about, was it £700 million rebate that Sky and BT um, and international broadcasters were going to be owed by Premier League clubs because, you know, the season didn't complete on time. And the the broadcasters there had this opportunity to negotiate a different level of access. They had the Premier League clubs basically by the bollocks and they could have they could have got whatever access they pushed for at that point whether that was getting into the dressing rooms before games hearing pre-match team talks interviewing managers at half time all these different aspects that as viewers we we would have wanted and they didn't get any of them and the premier league clubs just sort of won this battle and i thought i thought it was a big shame and, and one of those things that i felt and, and i understand it needs ifab approval so it would it would need to go further than just BT or Sky negotiating it. But one of the things I would love them to push for is enable the viewer to hear the conversations that Robbie Savage's co-commentator is allowed to hear. Why is Robbie Savage, Gary Neville, Andy Hinchcliffe allowed to hear things that, that I as a viewer cannot? That's, that's what I can't get ahead my head around because you, you sometimes then get the co-commentator telling you before it's happened, oh, yes. they're going to give this here or... Or, or they're, they're discussing it. It's like, well, why, why do you get to hear this, but I can't? Why, why, why are we trusting? Nothing against Andy Hinchcliffe here, but <laughs> why, why are we trusting Andy Hinchcliffe to hear this conversation, but not the person paying yeah. X amount per month to subscribe to the channel? And I think, I just think it's a bit of a shame um, because I think it would help the referees as well. Um, I think it would be embarrassing in certain situations because they're human beings and they're going to mess up and. The Lee Mason one was just a massive fuck up and it happens. And actually what technology does, Tim, is actually require, bring the requirement for that communication to be heard more to the foreground. You know, the more you are having those conversations about what can be allowed and what can't be and what they're looking at on a screen, the more the people watching on the screen at home need to be able to hear what's going on. And actually football even more so looks stuck in the past when you compare it to all the other major sports in the world where you can hear, and listen, not always getting it right, where you can hear them making a right 
pig's ear of it. You know, some of the third umpiring decisions in the cricket recently, blimey, right? But at least you can hear it. Yeah, absolutely. And other sports have led the way in that regard and all the other major sports in this country do it. Cricket, rugby, snooker. You can, Both rugby. You, you can yeah. hear the snooker referees, what they're saying. You know, it's... it's um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and cricket, absolutely. But but if anyone's got a notion of, you know, we can hear why the decisions have been made and we can hear why the decisions have been made, so that's going to eliminate controversy. Yeah, you've, you've only got to watch the Test match last week to know that that's absolutely yeah. not the case. Um, but it would, yeah, of course, it would be extremely beneficial to hear why. Uh, I, th- I think that's what we've been crying out for for years. What, why has that decision been made? They know the rules yeah. far better than, than than we ever do. So let's hear why they've made that decision. On the Luke Shaw one yesterday, after the Chelsea-Manchester United game, where he he essentially suggested, and it was then reiterated by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer without him actually saying it, he was suggesting that the referee, Stuart Atwell, had said to Harry Maguire, the Manchester United captain, that the decision hadn't been made because it would cause controversy down the line. Manchester United then suggested to journalists later in the night that that Harry Maguire had misheard the referee. But I'm very uncomfortable with that whole episode because you have people in a pretty prominent position on a big platform in the immediate aftermath of a game making allegations about what a referee has said. But the referee has no power to then come out and actually give his side of it. So you've got a very serious allegation made about, essentially about a referee's integrity there, which Luke Shaw, if that's what Harry Maguire has said to him in the dressing room, he's entitled to come out and say that and and air that. But what I don't like there is that the PGMOL never going to allow Stuart Atwell to come out and say, this is what I said, or this is why I said it, this is how I said it. And therefore we now have, I think this is something that's going to stick on Stuart Atwell actually, what was said yesterday. And really, I mean, they have to start empowering these referees. If the players are going to come out and say, you know, a bit like Lewis Dunk said about Lee Mason after the game as well the other day, repeating conversations that, that were said, you know, these are, these are serious question marks about integrity and about how referees are talking during games and managing situations. I don't think you can have that if you then don't allow the referees themselves come out and talk about it. I'm sure the players would like them to as well. I think as far as we know, many of these referees would like to come out. I remember a a big controversy with Michael Oliver. I can't remember the exact incident. And the messages we got were that Michael Oliver would love to come out and explain his reasoning and talk, but he wasn't allowed to under the rules. So, And I've said this to, to people at the Premier League at length, like, Football is being overshadowed like never before by this conversation, this constant controversy. It's damaging the product and it's so unnecessary. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet and it will solve everything if they come out and speak, but it will help a situation. For me, it's an absolute no-brainer. Tim, Adam, thank you very much for joining myself. And David, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm back on this podcast on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for the Business of Sport. And look out for the latest episode of David's YouTube video series, Ask Ornstein, on Wednesday. Bye for now. The Athletic.